Speaking of the Hebrews escaping Egypt, uh, shortly after the Hebrews had, had their escape there, uh, Moses, very, very quickly, he began, as they would go and they would travel about, right, they're, they're wandering in the wilderness, uh, Moses would go about and he, each time that they would set up camp, Moses would set up an additional tent. And this tent was a tent for the Lord. And they called it the tent of meeting. It was also called uh, the dwelling place of the Lord. Okay? And, and it's said that, uh, the Bible says this, you can read about it um, in Exodus, it says that Moses would go into this tent and talk face to face with God. That's pretty good. Well, after a little while, they're wandering and, uh, you know, continuing. It doesn't look like they're going to inhabit the promised land anytime soon. So God tells Moses, I want you to go up to Mount Sinai and and I want you to chisel out some new tablets for me because the ones that he had before, uh, Moses had already broken those, the ones with the Ten Commandments on it, right? And so some new tablets and God lays out some prescriptions that, that, uh, that he wants because he likes this tent idea. As they go around, God likes being in this tent and having, having that tent for him. But now he wants, it, he wants to step it up a little bit. And, and he lays out some prescriptions, some different layers to it, and, uh, and, and a different way of making the tent. But he still wants it to be a tent, and, and he calls this one the tabernacle. All right, And this, this is somebody what somebody thought the tabernacle might look like. And I saw lots of images on the internet that, that looked similar to this, so it must be from some pretty detailed description that is in Scripture. Um, so that's the tabernacle. And um, hundreds of years after that, still, you've got David and King Solomon uh, who start to have this longing in their hearts that, that, that God shouldn't have a tent. Instead, he should have a temple, right? And ultimately, it's Solomon that, that goes ahead and builds a temple for the Lord. Now, I read a chapter recently in a book by Michael Lodal, um, Dr. Michael Lodal. Some of you know him. He was our speaker at Family Retreat uh, this past year. Great guy, one of the, one of the most well-known theologians in the Nazarene tradition. And, uh, and he wrote this chapter, and it kind of got me thinking about some of these things between the, the tents there and, and the temple later that they built. And, and so I decided that I wanted to preach a series on some of these ideas. And so uh, I've got this, these two weeks, so it's a mini-series, but I'm calling it Tents, Tabernacles, and Temples. And I think it's going to be good. I'm pretty excited about it. How many of you guys enjoy camping? Okay, some. How many of you don't enjoy camping? <laughs> yeah, a very emphatic yes. Okay, there, there are some of you. That, that's, that's fine. Uh, the, the thing about camping, right, is, is the flexibility. You've got to be ready to kind of make shift a little bit. Things aren't, things aren't just always kind of nice and easy like, like at home. If those of you who don't like camping, it's probably because you... Uh, you you, you kind of like the commodities of home, right? You like knowing that you can go over to the stove and turn on the burner and make yourself some eggs. You like knowing that when you come into a room, you can flip the switch and light is going to be there, even in the middle of the night, right? There, there are those things that, yeah, there's something nice about that. Driving me nuts. Get out of here. There we go. Um, 
Well, no one in my family is known really for um, a great ability for organizing. Um, not, not, not a lot of great organizational skills, you know, like with um, spreadsheets and uh, different categories and, and things like that, uh, checklists. You know, none of us are really well known for that. Neither is anybody in my family really well known for um, our ability to uh, just remember a lot of stuff uh, very easily. Uh, in fact, uh, we're actually more well known for um, not being able to find our keys or, or um, our phones. Uh, I've often, not often, but sometimes I've had to ask strangers to call my phone so I could find it. That's a fun one. My family, with the exception of Laura, I should clarify that because Laura is really organized and she's good at that stuff. Um, but the family I grew up in, uh, we were known for showing up to a baseball game without our baseball glove. <laughs> one time as a kid, uh, I even, I rode my bike to the park and I walked home. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but that's just us. That's just who we are, you know? We, we don't stress out about it. We learn to manage it. We go with it, you know? So you can imagine that going camping with my family, there's not a chance in the world that we're going to remember everything that we're supposed to take for this camping trip. Sure, we're going to remember the pancake batter, and we're going to remember the, the griddle, but we might forget the spatula. We're going to remember the tents and the ropes and the stakes for putting up the tents, but we're likely to forget the hammer, right, to drive in the stakes. But like I said, you know, which we know that's who we are. We, we're ready. One of the things that we do is we like to, we like to use our, our, our strengths to kind of make up for our weaknesses, right? And so to use some strengths language that we're all about here at this church, um, we manage our weaknesses with our strengths. And so we are very uh, resourceful people, my family. And so we know that if you forget the spatula, some tinfoil will work just fine with, with tinfoil. If you're quick enough, you can get up under those pancakes and flop them over. And if you're really quick, you can do it without being burned. Then... <laughs> For pounding those steaks, you can find a large rock and pound them in. It's going to get the job done. So again, we're, we don't mind it. Being flexible, makeshifting. In fact, we kind of even enjoy it. Loud is always, you know, being bugged about how I forget things or things like that. And for me, it's the spice of life. I enjoy, like, just kind of, okay, the next challenge, make it happen. Well, if, if you don't enjoy camping, you would have hated being an ancient Hebrew. Let me tell you that. No question about it. As you know, God helped them to escape from Egypt, right? And they went through the Red Sea with the idea ultimately of going to their promised land, but didn't quite work out. There was a lack of faith, and they ended up wandering for 40 years in the wilderness camping. How does that sound? Camping for 40 years. I'm guessing that even those of you who love camping after, after a couple years would be sick of it. I would be, and I like it. But they, wanted, they were a nomadic people, right? Going about 
with their tents, packing up camp, going somewhere else, packing up camp, going somewhere else. And every time they would pack up, go somewhere else, Moses would go and he would make that tent, that dwelling place of the Lord. And um, you might be wondering, like, why, why didn't at some point, why didn't they just make some homes? Why didn't they, why didn't they ever settle and just, you know, they were going to be there for a long time, so build some houses, get comfortable, bust out your commodities. They never had the time. I mean, you think about it, that this was, this was a time, you know, the cradle of civilization. There were all these different civilizations that were kind of popping up at the time, and they never knew when some army might be coming over the hill, and they were a small people. They didn't have a huge army, and so uh, they, whenever someone came around the corner, they'd have to pack up, go somewhere else. That was part of just who they were for these 40 years, escaping, running away from, from different armies that were there. But that's the thing, is that God kind of looked out and he said, okay, if my people are going to be in tents, then guess what? I'm going to be in a tent with my people. So he commanded Moses to have this tent available. Anytime you set up the tents for the people, you're going to be there a little while, set up a tent for me. I'm going to be there, and I'm going to meet with you, and I'm going to interact with my people. I'm going to be with my people, and I'm going to go about. I'm going to be this kind of nomadic God, flexible, makeshifting along with you. That's what we do when we're camping, and God was going to do that. Now, I'm going to ask you this question, and be careful with this, and I've already totally led you into the answer, but for those of you who are really, really hate camping, I want you to be careful about this, because I'm going to ask you the question of, which do you think God preferred? Camping in the tabernacle, or later, in later years, when he had his dwelling in the temple? Okay, ready? We're going to answer, and remember, you know the answer, right? So we're going to say it out together, ready? One. Two, three. Camping. God preferred camping. And that's, that's, um, like, that's not just really the main point of the sermon today. It's not just like, our God is a God who loves camping. <laughs> Amen. Next week we'll be meeting in the wilderness. We're not, there's, uh, I'm saying that um, because I think that it, like, it carries with it some, some real meaning. There's some real theological lesson in that statement that our, that our God loved being in the tent. He loved that camping. And anything that, that has, has real theological importance, anytime there's theological importance, that also has a fair amount of importance for us. It means something for us that our God loved being in the tent. So let me, let me show you a couple of places in Scripture where this is evident that, that our God loved being the tent dweller, all right? First, let's talk, about, um, let's talk about King David. He was the first guy, really, who longed to build a temple for God. And uh, so, as the story goes, Saul has died, and King David um, gets called by God to be the, the, the next king, and he becomes a king, and his first act of duty, he goes out and takes the Hebrew army, and they conquer the Philistines, and then they come back, and he finds himself in possession of the Ark of the Covenant. And the temple, uh, the, I mean the tent and the tabernacle, that's, that um, is what was used to, to house the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God to the Hebrew people. And so that's housed there uh, in the tabernacle. And here's King David finds himself in possession of the Ark 
uh, of the covenant. And he, find, he kind of wanders aloud, uh, and, and, he, and he says this even to the prophet Nathan that's nearby. He says, this is in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verse 2, he says, How is it that I'm here living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God is out there in a tent? It's a valid question. It makes sense. It's a thought process. I think that all of us would, we would understand. We're kind of tracking on that same thing. Yeah, you know, this is the right thinking for David. He wants the presence of God to have a better dwelling place than he himself has. That's good. That's right thinking. Way to go, David. But then God speaks to Nathan, the prophet. And he comes to Nathan with this message to give to David, which is found in 2 Samuel, also chapter 7, verses 5 through 11. And I'm actually going to have a stand. This, we haven't read scripture. I know you're all comfy. I'm well into the sermon. But stand up. We're going we're gonna to read this. And at uh, the conclusion of it, I'll say the word of the Lord. You guys can say, thanks be to God. All right? It says this, it says, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day that I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving about from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. And wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to my... Uh, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great. Like the names of the greatest men on earth, I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. you uh, the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be God. You guys can be seated. Now, I took the time, and actually, uh, I think that this is kind of a, kind of a funny passage, actually. Uh, I, I love the way that, the way that God speaks, in, about, speaks to David here. And so I actually took the time to kind of write out a paraphrase of this. So uh, if you have your Bibles, open it up so you can see that I'm, I'm totally tracking on the same stuff, but I've put it in a way that maybe we can kind of hear some of the tone that I think God was going for. So uh, here's what it is, 2 Samuel 7, 5 through 11, uh, New Coast Community Jake version. <laughs> really, David? You are going to build me a house? Funny, I haven't needed a house ever since I freed the Hebrews from the Egyptians. Ever since then, I've been moving about from place to place, wherever I please, just pitch in a tent for my dwelling. I have been with my people all this time, and I've never said, why haven't you built me a house? David, let's think critically about this. I'm the one who took you from being a shepherd 
to being a king. I'm the one who has been with you through it all. I'm the one who cut down your enemies, and now I'm making your name great. I'm the one who's taking care of my people. I'm the one who's breaking the chains of oppression, and I'm the one who will give you rest from your enemies. So no, 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 David, let's get this right. You aren't going to build me a house. I'm building a house for you. Love that. I love that. This is, this is good. And like, it's got some good stuff, and I don't even really know exactly where to start in it. But there's a couple of things. One of them is that, on one hand, you have God telling David that it's silly that he should build him a house, right? And, and, and later on, David recognizes that this is true. In fact, if you read on there in 2 Samuel, you'll see just a little while later that David kneels in, in full humility and prays to God and says, Thank you, God, that you are blessing my house instead of me trying to build for you a house. That makes sense to David. He, he, he gets it, you would say. But then you have this other idea in there about how God says, I've been roaming about in just a tent. I've been fine. You get the sense that God has no desire to have anything else besides this tent. And why, why, why doesn't God want a house? I think it's because he loves that flexibility. He loves that makeshift that you have to have when you're camping. He loves to be in motion and he loves to wander about with and amidst his people being where they are. But get this, because our God is the kind of God that loves the dynamics of interpersonal relationships, because he is the kind of God that that loves this motion and this bend and flex because he's the kind of God that is willing to compromise, literally to promise with, compromise, because he is the kind of God that, that is a covenant God, enters into covenants with humanity, because he's that kind of God, he ultimately allows the Israelites to build him a temple, even though it's not what he wanted. So it's kind of a double thing here, right? First of all, he loves being in a tent because it allows him to be flexible. He's that kind of God who is flexible and moves with what, whatever they're bringing at him. And yet, because he's that kind of God, they bring something at him that isn't really what he wanted. But again, being that flexible kind of God, he says, okay, we'll do it your way. You can see this even perhaps more evident going back to before King David, before King Saul, um, God himself was ruling the people. They call this uh, theocracy, right? God was the one who was ruling the people, and he was, using, uh, he was using judges, and he was using prophets to get across his idea. And one of those, one of those prophets uh, was, was Samuel himself. And uh, at one point, the Israelites come to Samuel, and they say, Samuel, you're old. And not only are you old, your kids, they don't even follow in the ways that you taught. So get out of here and give us a king like all the other nations have. And Samuel receives this as a rejection of his leadership, right? And so he goes to God and he says, God, they're, they're rejecting me. And God says, Samuel, no, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting my leadership. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to them and you warn them 
about the kind of kings that they're going to have, how their kings will rule harshly over them. You go and warn them, but I'll flex. Give them the king that they want. That's not really my plan. It's not really what I wanted, but I'm a flexible, compromising, covenanting God. And if that is what the people want, then I will, I will make room for that, and I will work that into what I'm weaving. And church, this is the picture of God that the Bible is giving us, a God that is willing to bend and compromise as he is in relationship with us. Our God bends. And so here's what's theologically important about the statement that God loves camping. And of course, when I, when I say that God loves camping, that's totally just a metaphor for the truth that God is shown in Scripture to be the kind of God that enjoys dynamic interaction with us. He likes relational commitments. He likes teamwork. He loves to work through covenants. And as strange as it may sound, he seems to prefer working with us fickle and often unreliable beings to accomplish salvation and to bring about his redemption and creation. Yeah. When we, Scripture shows that when we are determined to have our way, God bends. That's the theological implication of these stories. But now anytime there's a theological truth, right, there's also, that means something for us. What it means for us, the theological implications of these stories means for us that because God will bend to some of our determined desires, it means that we are held incredibly responsible for what goes on around here. Doesn't that make sense? When I was relatively young, uh, I decided that someday I should get married. There was a brief time in college where I considered that possibly um, that I might have the gift of celibacy, but then like, as time went on, I found women far too attractive to, to, to have been gifted with that gift. And so I, so I recognized that at some point, I'm, I should get married. That's true, I should. And uh, however, when I made that realization, I just didn't go out and marry the first girl that I found attractive. There were several girls that, that, that I dated, and, and most of them were lovely, nice girls that didn't make the cut. <laughs> Ultimately, when I decided to marry Laura, it was because I held her in very high esteem. There's some of them that, that I just, I enjoy being around Lauda. It, I prefer to have Lauda in my life messing up my plans. <laughs> That's true. Like, Lauda is so, Lauda is so quiet, like maybe a lot of you guys, you don't hear about her plans and her opinions, but I do, and she has her own, and they are different from mine, and oftentimes, I have to bend and flex what I want because of what she wants, 
but I hold her in such high esteem that I would much rather do that than to have my way all the time. Amen. And it has been oh so evident in these last three weeks that she's been gone. I've been doing whatever I want all the time. And it is just not quite right. But I think that illustrates, by the way, it's Lauda's birthday today. So happy birthday to Lauda. Um, I think that, that this truth, like my relationship with Lauda, it, it, I say it only as an illustration for the way that God feels about us. So often, we think, um, we think of ourselves as unworthy to receive God's mercy. And that's true, of course. If it was merited, it wouldn't be mercy. We're unworthy of his mercy. And, and yet, so often we think of ourselves also as like lowly sinners, and that's true. The Bible is clear that we, are, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We are sinful beings. But let us be very clear that our God holds us in very high esteem. The book of Psalms says that he created us a little lower than the angels, but has crowned us with his love and compassion. You wear a little God-given crown. That means that in his eyes you have tremendous value. Tremendous value. It also says um, in the Psalms that God knit us together in our mother's womb, right? I can imagine God like with glasses out on the end of his nose and his hair up in a bun or something like knitting. I apologize for, for that awful stereotype. Especially some of those that you who love knitting. Michelle, are you here? No bun, right? No, you just... Okay, good. Um... Where was I? The bun. Bible also says in Ephesians that we are God's workmanship, created for good works in Christ. We are his masterpieces. We're the work of his hands. It says in, in Genesis that he created us, formed us out of the dust, breathed into us, and stepped back and said, That's good. Good. And, and, and we, are, we are held in very high esteem by our God. Don't forget that. God made us and loved us all so much that he prefers to have our plans messed up. He prefers to have his plans messed up by our shenanigans rather than to do what he wants all the time. Yeah. And so that fact, while it's true and while it's beautiful, puts a very heavy amount of responsibility on us, does it not? We are held incredibly responsible for the things that go on around here. One time, Moses, he summoned all the people, uh, all the Hebrew people together. Now this is everybody um, in the world at that point point in history. It's everybody in the world that knew who God was, that knew anything about the character of God, right? He, he pulls them all together, and he, and, and, and he gives them a word from God. This is in Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. Everybody who knows who God is, he says this to them. 
Now, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask, who will ascend to heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? No, the word is very near to you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart so that you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase And the Lord will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. Skipping to verse 19, Moses continues to say, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. Again, to every single person that knew anything about the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, he pulls them all together and he says, there are two options in this life. I put before you life and prosperity, death and curses. There are two options. You are either responsible in this creation for life, prosperity, and blessings, or you are responsible for death, curses, and destruction. That's, that's an incredible amount of responsibility. One of the things that we, one of the truths, the, the deep truths that we understand when we talk about that, that, that we are created in the image of God is, is that we understand that that makes us also creators. If our God is a creator and we're created in his image, then we also have this, we have this inside us, this capacity to create. And some of you are like, well, I'm not really a very creative person. Nevertheless, the things that you do, just, just your existence has ripples and you are, you are creating with your life. We are each composing a symphony. And the, the question is, Is what we are composing in tune with God's salvation song, or are we out of tune with it? I guess to sum it up, uh, it's kind of like what what Paul says in both of his letters to the Corinthians, and and at least once in the Philippians, he says that we are co-laborers with God in Christ. That God is working to bring about salvation in creation, And we have the responsibility to work alongside him. Are we working with him or are we working against him? Those are the questions. Those are the two options. Now, I didn't really have, you know, a lot of structure to this message. I don't have a bunch of points for you to take home. But but if I can just kind of sum up these two things. First of all, is that it's reflected in Scripture that God chooses to be dynamic He chooses to be a compromising kind of God, a covenantal relationship with us. And the second thing is that 
because of that truth, he really hopes for us. He is really longing for our individual sake and for the sake of humanity. He is hoping that we truly do co-labor with him, sharing in the same direction, sharing in the same goals that he has. Do you find yourself today writing some kind of story that is different from anything that God would write? Do you feel that heaven and earth have been been witnessing against you that you have life and death, the options put before you, you have blessings and cursings right before you, and and though you don't even, you're not even sure why you seem to keep on choosing curses? Today, there's just a really good word for you. And I mean, and it's, it's the gospel, essentially. It's that our God is flexible. Our God is bendable. He's not rigid. He's not stuck in the way things are. And if you have been writing a story that's not like his story, if you've been composing a symphony that is not in tune with his symphony, it's not, it's not out of the realm of possibility for you to change keys. And God will simply pull what you are composing into his salvation's song. He will bend and flex because he's capable. He's that kind of God. And he will work that together for our good. He doesn't mind the makeshifting. That's the fantastic news of our God and his flexibility.